0: Hello, and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and, most notably, throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 12 Keep It Real. As an alert to parents, some of the content in this episode is a little mature, but by the time you listen to this, I'll have researched for this episode about a year or so ago now. Doing a history podcast does consume a lot of time, so I needed to make sure I had enough in the pipeline to ensure I could keep a steady stream to be listened to. I have a long list of topics I want to do for people, places and events. And then sometimes something just falls into your lap and you just want to get cracking on writing about it. There's been a great TV series called Grand Tours of Scotland's Locks. And having had the privilege to have seen a number of them in real life, I wasn't going to turn down the chance to see some more presenter Paul Merton had the horrible job of wandering about this stunning country so I have to give him and the BBC crew credit for this episode as it gave me something to podcast that I thought you might find fascinating and hey Paul if you ever need a co-host hit me up I can travel He briefly spoke during the episode about a man named John Ruskin and the slightly sordid details of his relationship with his wife. Hey, a little sordid is always good for a podcast, and it was in the 1800s, so it qualifies for me. And then I found out so much more. John Ruskin was born on February 8th, 1819, so he would have been celebrating his 202nd birthday about a week or so ago by the time this comes out. Timing there, happy birthday John. He's recognised as the leading art critic of the Victorian era, and Ruskin was a patron of the arts, a philanthropist, and a social thinker. He wrote on a wide range of subjects, such as myths, architecture, education, geology and political economy, to name a few. Importantly, in all his writings, he emphasised the connections between nature, art and society. So as you can probably already see, he was way ahead of his time. He was, after all, growing up in a society that was heavily focused on industrial advancement at the expense of art. And culture. But how did he get to that insightful point in his life? Well, I'm glad you asked. Ruskin was largely educated by his parents and private tutors. His father gave him a passion for the works of Byron, Shakespeare, and Walter Scott, as well as an abiding belief in the ideas of the Romantic era. The chief of these ideas being that the feelings of the artist are critical to any work. This is a terribly crude explanation of it, and I'll cover the concept of Romanticism some other time. But John's mother was an evangelical Christian who would spend hours teaching him to read the Bible as well as having him commit large passages to memory but he later went to King's College in London and there prepared for Oxford. His tutor through this time was Thomas Dale, the man who was the first professor of English literature at King's College. Ruskin's parents certainly weren't short of funds, and he spent a lot of time travelling around Europe and the United Kingdom with his parents, including such places as France, Belgium, Venice and Turin, as well as closer to home in the Lakes District and north into Scotland. He regarded Venice as the paradise of cities and it was the subject of a lot of his works. In 1836, Ruskin could be found studying at the University of Oxford. While he was often ill during this period, he did make some important friendships. Among those was Charles Thomas Newton. He was a famous archaeologist of the time, who was later knighted for his work. Another friend was William Buckland. And aside from being a brilliant geologist and paleontologist, Buckland went on to become the Dean of Westminster Abbey. Also, one of his senior tutors was Henry Little. Henry would have an exemplary academic career that needs to be talked about some other time. But for the sake of trivia here, Henry would later have a daughter named Alice. Yes, the inspiration for that Alice. You know the one, white rabbits, TikTok, all of that. In 1837, through the following year, Ruskin wrote a series of articles for London's architectural magazine that dwellings should be, and I quote, sympathetic to their immediate environment, and use local materials. Quote. So we can already see that Ruskin has an extraordinary talent for foreseeing what a community needs to do to create a successful living environment. But he doesn't stop there. In 1839, Ruskin won the Newdigate Prize for Poetry. This was the highest award at Oxford for literature. He was given the opportunity at the ceremony to meet the brilliant poet William Wordsworth. Ruskin was definitely a man of many talents. His health, however, was poor, and wasn't helped by finding out that the woman that he loved, a lady by the name of Adèle Domecq, had become engaged to a French nobleman. It was in 1840 that Ruskin started coughing up blood. Now... We all know that's never a good sign, and it led to him taking a break from his studies. While spending time with his family and their friends, he was set a challenge by the daughter of the Grey family. Twelve-year-old Ellie asked Ruskin to write her a fairy story. In what became his only work of fiction, as well as his most translated work, Ruskin's story was called The King of the Golden River. As a trivia aside, if you're a fan of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels, you'll recognise that name as the nickname given to the street-smart character of Harry King. Although it was for different reasons, I'm not going into those here. But despite being as ill as he was, Ruskin did sit for a past degree in 1842 and was awarded an honorary double fourth-class degree in recognition of his achievements. Ruskin first came to public attention when the first volume of Modern Painters was released in 1843, and John wrote extensively in defence of the brilliant artist, J.M.W. Turner. Another very long story short, Turner had focused much of his work bringing landscape painting to a prominent form, and this was not always regarded as popular by the artistic establishment. Ruskin argued that modern landscape painters such as Turner were superior to the old masters because the latter were following convention and not what he called truth to nature. It was, Ruskin believed, the task of the artist to observe the reality of nature and not to invent it while this idea was slowly gaining traction his ideas soon found ground among artistic figures in english society famous writers such as charlotte brontë and elizabeth gaskell supported ruskin's ideas and from there his position in artistic society was established touring europe once again in 1844 he pointedly wrote of the changes he saw in venice from the city that he had known. Venice is lost to me, he wrote. The modernisation and architectural restoration of the city was to Ruskin simply a form of destruction. For John Ruskin, the only true action to take was that of preservation and conservation. Back in England, it was in 1847 that John Ruskin became engaged to Effie Gray. You remember her, the 12-year-old that he wrote the story for? hmm Well, Euphemia Chalmers Gray was now 19. And in a relationship that was encouraged by both of their families, the young woman became Mrs. Ruskin to the 29-year-old John in 1848. The couple then moved into the house that had once been owned by Ruskin's grandfather. It was the home where his grandfather had committed suicide by cutting his own throat. So, I guess that adds some gothic background to the relationship. The couple travelled to Venice in November 1849, and it was here that cracks began to show in their relationship. John preferred to draw and write were engaging in solitary studies, while his younger wife wanted to socialise and enjoy the city. At the time, there were Austrian troops in the city, and apparently with Ruskin's consent, one of the troops, a Lieutenant Charles Pulitzer, became, quote, friendly, unquote, with the young wife of Ruskin. That can mean anything, for sure, but Effie's brother and others later believed that Ruskin deliberately encouraged the relationship to compromise Effie and to give him an excuse to separate. Supremely talented, environmentally aware, yet naive about his marriage. That's John Ruskin. Every time you start to look at someone else's life, there always seems to be some high points and others not so high, so can't be too quick to judge. It was also during the trip to Venice with Effie that Ruskin worked on what became a three volume work called the Stones of Venice. It started out as a technical work of Venetian architecture, but evolved into a broader study of the cultural history of the city. He felt that Venetian cultural achievements had been compromised and therefore its society had been too. Because of a decline in the true Christian faith. Ruskin believed instead of revering the divine, architects were being selfish and honouring themselves and celebrating human sensuality. Ruskin loved the Gothic style of ornament, seeing it as an expression of free and creative work rather than using machinery. An artist should be using their hands. If he was alive today, you just know that Ruskin would shop on Etsy and not eBay. I quote here from Volume 2 of the series. We want one man to be always thinking and another to be always working, and we call one a gentleman and the other an operative, whereas the workman ought often to be thinking and the thinker often ought to be working, and both should be gentlemen in the best sense. As it is, we make both ungentle, the one envying, the other despising. His brother and the mass of society is made up of morbid thinkers and miserable workers. Now, it is only by labour that thought can be made healthy, and only by thought that labour can be made happy, and the two cannot be separated with impunity. End quote. This work was seen as being a critique of the division of labour in society and also on industrial capitalism in general. Socialist groups in particular reprinted this as an argument for their social ideas and desires for restructuring the workforce. Again, this concept of management and worker working together and understanding their roles together is more of an idea that we encourage in our modern workplaces Whereas back then, the idea was seen as being counter to commercial success. As his life continued, it was in the 1850s that Ruskin became a strong supporter of the men that became known as the pre-Raphaelites. Raphael and others like him, such as Michelangelo, had changed the style of painting to a more structured and fixed style that corrupted the art of the day. The men Ruskin supported felt that art should have more intense colours and more details for the art to be more natural. They wanted a return to art as it was before Raphael, thus the name, Pre-Raphaelites. This movement was something certainly within Ruskin's beliefs of how art should be, and with the early artists within this movement, they were influenced by his opinions as well So it was a win-win for both sides on that. Among the artists in the pre-Raphaelites was a man named John Everett Millay. Among Millay's most prominent works was one called Christ in the House of His Parents. This painting was considered blasphemous at the time. It had Jesus cutting his hand on a nail while he was in his father's workshop. The floor is messy with dirt and wood... The clothing worn by Joseph and Mary and their family is of a more practical style, realistic to the time, rather than the Roman togas Jesus' family are usually depicted in. Remember when I said the pre Raphaelites liked realism in their paintings? Well, this sort of realistic depiction of a carpenter's workshop is what the establishment objected to. Charles Dickens himself even wrote a letter protesting that the painting portrays Mary as an alcoholic who looks, and I quote, so hideous in her ugliness that she would stand out from the rest of the company as a monster in the vilest cabaret in France or the lowest gin shop in England. Unquote. Ouch. Ouch. Ruskin himself wasn't overly impressed with the painting, but did write letters to the Times newspaper in 1851, defending the works of the pre-Raphaelites. He later provided patronage and encouragement to Millay, and in the summer of 1853, Millay travelled with Ruskin and Effie to Glenfinless to paint. And it was in this trip that I heard about while watching the Grand Tours of Scotland's Locks. We're getting there. While on this trip, Effie was suffering physical illness as well as acute anxiety. The conflicts with a husband that had been occurring in Venice had continued. Being back in England, his overly protective parents had been, shall we say, less than helpful in supporting the couple, and their marriage and the stress of being closer to her in-laws caused a lot of Effie's anxiety. And it was in the hills of Scotland that Effie and Malay fell in love. Effie then left Ruskin, naturally causing a huge scandal at the time that was gossiped about in all the social circles of note. A lot has been said about this trio and why this happened. Some rumours indicate that on their wedding night and upon seeing Effie naked, Ruskin was surprised to see her pubic hair he having thought that all women looked like those that he had seen in classical paintings with hairless bodies. Others have stated they believe Effie may have been menstruating and this repulsed Ruskin. His disbelief in how a woman was meant to look is further compounded by the fact that in 1854, Effie filed a suit to annul their marriage on the grounds of non-consummation. This was six years after they'd gotten married. Ruskin disputed the claims of incurable impotency, but the annulment did go through. Ruskin told his lawyer during the annulment proceedings, It may be thought strange that I could abstain from a woman who, to most people, was so attractive. But, though her face was beautiful, her person was not formed to excite passion. On the contrary, there were certain circumstances in her person which completely checked it. End quote. And double ouch. That's got to hurt. Effie married Malay the following year. She lived to the age of 69 and had seven children by him. Ruskin did not even make mention of any of these events in his diaries. But even with such a huge scandal being splashed sordidly across the newspapers of the day, Ruskin continued to write. His reviews were hugely influential, capable of making, or breaking, someone's reputation. Don't forget, this is a time without all the distractions that we have today to entertain us. Visiting a gallery and seeing the latest works was the equivalent of scrolling through your Instagram or Pinterest and checking out the latest photos and works by those you follow. Ruskin was the equivalent of having the biggest webpage devoted to talking about current social trends in the most popular form of artistic expression of the day. The satirical magazine Punch wrote of him in 1856, I paints and paints... He's no complaints and sells before I'm dry, till Savage Ruskin he sticks his tusk in, then nobody will buy. So, like Ron Burgundy in Anchorman, he was kind of a big deal. In addition to continuing to patron the arts, he also exhibited his own watercolours in both England and the United States. His theories on art inspired some architects to adopt a more Gothic style to their works. Among those buildings that he directly influenced are the Oxford University Museum of Natural History. In 1858, Ruskin was employed by the wealthy Latouche family to teach their daughters drawing and painting. Now don't get the wrong idea too quickly here. Rose Latouche was 10, Ruskin was 39. Apparently he gradually fell in love with her. And during these years, Ruskin was having a crisis of faith and combined with the joy and depression he felt towards Rose meant he struggled for a number of years with mental health problems. In 1867, Rose was 18 and he proposed to her, but she asked him to wait three more years until she turned 21. However, She finally rejected him in 1872 before she died of illness in 1875. Her death exacerbated his ill health and led to Ruskin experiencing mental breakdowns and delirious visions. He turned to spiritualism for a while and in attempting to contact Rose but eventually returned to his Christian faith. Like you, I do find the whole thing really creepy, but I only mention this relationship with Rose Latouche because of the obvious connotations that Ruskin was a pedophile. And given the sordid nature of the topic, it's always raised in any discussion on Ruskin's life. However, while he may have admired the look of younger girls, at no time was there ever any accusations of inappropriate behaviour by people on his side or hers. In fact, there is no known evidence of Ruskin ever having had any sort of sexual activity in any way. It's been said that he simply enjoyed the happy innocence of such girls, and that was the extent of it. Anyway, moving on. Ruskin was a very popular lecturer, speaking at places all over England on architecture and painting, among the ideas that he spoke of was that true wealth is virtue and that art is an index of a nation's well-being. When at his prime as a lecturer, Ruskin was described as being slim, a little short and with an aquiline nose and piercing blue eyes. He often sported a double-breasted waistcoat with a high collar and wore a neck cloth in blue, which was kind of his signature item. From 1878, he sported a beard that gave what people described as the look of a prophet from the Old Testament. Ruskin continued travelling to the continent regularly, and while his writings continued to discuss art, they also increasingly attacked capitalism. Ruskin believed that the social aspect of a society was more important than simply making money. These essays were originally published in 1860 in a book called Unto This Last and among conservatives they were treated with hostility. However, they later proved an influence among the founders of the British Labour Party and also no less than Mohandas Gandhi. And Ruskin did not confine himself to only talking about what needed to be done. His father died in 1864, leaving him a fortune, and he used some of this to support the housing scheme of social reformer Octavia Hill in London. In 1869, Ruskin was appointed the first Professor of Fine Art at Oxford University, and later founded his own art school within the university. I spoke before about him being a popular speaker. Well, when he held his position at Oxford, nothing had changed. His lectures were often so popular that he had to give them twice, once for the students and then a second one for the public. Ruskin believed that the teaching of art was, quote, the teaching of all things. I'm sure we can all imagine the kind of social restrictions and conservative behaviours that would have existed in a university during this era, so you can imagine the controversy that Ruskin created in 1874 when he had his undergraduates working on a road-mending scheme near Oxford. He wanted to teach his students the merits of wholesome manual labour. Many of the students were influenced by this experience and it led to a public service ethic to those attending Oxford. So whatever his shortcomings, you have to admire this type of thinking. Oh, and uh, among those road workers that were influenced, future Secretary of State to the colonies Viscount Alfred Milner, future economic historian Arnold Toynbee, and some guy by the name of Oscar Wilde. Throughout the 1870s, he continued his writings on social commentary. Even as his health began to fail, he was pulled to court on a libel suit after publicly accusing painter James McNeil Whistler of, quote, Asking 200 guineas for flinging a pot of paint in the public's face. End quote. The painting was called Nocturne in Black and Gold, The Falling Rocket. Now, I'm absolutely not an expert in any way, but it isn't that bad. I'll put it on the Instagram account as well. You can have a look at it there. Damages were awarded to Whistler in the amount of one farthing, but the social damage was done to both. Whistler went bankrupt in six months, and Ruskin's reputation was tarnished too. It was in 1871 that he founded the Guild of St. George. The Guild was created to promote the economic and artistic ideals that Ruskin had. He wanted to see a return to a less profit-driven economy, one that aimed to improve the lives of everyone. Now I know to some that sounds kind of like communism, and I can certainly see why on first thought it seems to be the case. But there is an element of artistry and craft involved in the theories that communism doesn't have. Ruskin also was not seeking to change the structure of government, but to simply change the social emphasis on everything being about money. Purchasing land in Sheffield, Ruskin wanted to show people how to live a modern life while still using traditional means of farming. In addition to working on these lands, Ruskin bought expensive artwork to be viewed by them and to help enrich their lives so you can see how far ahead of his time Ruskin was. He advocated sustainable farming, craftsmanship over mass production and learning to live with your environment rather than damaging it. At the same time, he continued advocating that art should be for everyone and that it enriched everyone's lives, not just the rich people able to afford many of the pieces. The Guild of St George still exists to this day. His health was declining when he bought Brantwood House in 1871. Standing on the shores of Coniston Water in the gorgeous Lakes District, he had the house and lands considerably altered to accommodate his experiments and room changes. In the 1880s, he wrote works on how industrialisation was affecting the weather. Again, ahead of your time. But as they say, the times they were a-changin'. And the final years of his work were seen as irrelevant. The Impressionist art movement was rising to prominence throughout Europe. While Ruskin might have agreed with the artists having their emotive stylings creating influences on their pictures, the fact that Impressionism did not focus on the reality of what was being painted meant that works were in conflict with Ruskin's opinions. Regardless of this slow change, it was during this time Ruskin wrote his last great work, his autobiography, Praetorita meaning of past things. Sadly, he was barely aware of his 80th birthday celebrations in 1899, and he died from influenza on January 20, 1900, just shy of his 81st birthday. Brantwood was later bought by Ruskin enthusiast John Howard Whitehouse and was later opened to the public in 1934, where you can still visit to this day. While Ruskin's works fell out of social favour in the years after his death, his influence reached across the world. Tolstoy described him as, one of the most remarkable men, not only of England and of our generation, but of all countries and all times." French novelist Marcel Proust admired him and translated his works into French. In Japan, pearl jeweler Ryuzu Mikimoto aided in the translations of Ruskin's works as well as incorporating Ruskian rose motifs in the jewelry in his worldwide business empire and even established a Ruskian society in Tokyo pioneers of town planning, Thomas Horsfall and Patrick Geddes, and the founders of the Garden City Movement, Ebenezer Howard and Raymond Unwin, all call Ruskin an inspiration for their own works. Even Pierre de Courbatin, the man who created the modern Olympic Games, cited that the Games should have a Ruskian aesthetic identity that transcended mere championship competitions. Since the 1960s, academic interest in his life has realised that a man born in a century of industrial revolution was more focused on environmentalism, sustainability and quality rather than mass production. Ruskin was a man of intense contradictions. Like a fish, he said, it is healthiest to swim against the stream, He described himself mostly as a conservative, but many of his ideas were socialist in outlook. He believed in hierarchy, but also that the rich had a responsibility to protect the poor. He had a privileged background, but gave away much of his wealth. I'll leave the last words to John Ruskin himself. In his biography, he said, It was probably much happier to live in a small house, and have Warwick Castle to be astonished at than to live in Warwick Castle and have nothing to be astonished at. So here endeth the episode. My website is victoriangaslamp.com. You can email me at victoriangaslamp at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have for future episodes. Happy to look into whatever might interest you as well. You are the ones listening. On Twitter at Vic Gaslamp and my Instagram account is Victorian gaslamp post there probably a couple of times a week and i do it as a bit of an extra aside to the podcast itself speaking of which the next episode will be out in two weeks so keep a lookout for that and i'll see you next time under the gas lamp